Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by me, Daniel Morn. I have the honour of having Professor of Clinical Psychology, Daniel Freeman, with me today. Good, mo- good morning, Daniel. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you've got a really interesting uh, programme of work being developed here in, in Oxford, and you're, you run the uh, Oxford Cognitive Approaches to Psychosis programme and you, you're looking into the understanding and treatment of delusions and hallucinations. That That's right, yeah. So it'd be great to just hear a little bit about uh, your work because I think lots of people, when they think about psychosis and the treatment of psychosis, they think about medications, they think about admissions and, and medications and, and those sorts of things, but you're thinking about it from quite a different angle, really. Well, I'm very much taking a psychological uh, approach to it, um, and there's a real UK strength, I think, in understanding and also developing treatments for delusions. But my ambition really is to produce a much, much better treatment for uh, delusions, particularly persecutory delusions, is, is the real focus. Um, I think we've come on in leaps and bounds in understanding what the causes are, and I think we can really translate that knowledge into much better treatments. So, um, the ambition of our group really is, is to have effect sizes that are much better than current treatments, um, but also that we're beginning to even shift towards targeting recovery. There's a lot of people who you know, don't respond enough to the treatments that we have that, that certainly help many people, uh, but we could be doing a lot better, and I think we can. What first got you in, interested in this area? Um, I think the simple answer is actually just talking to patients with psychosis. Um, and. I remember it now, thinking back and meeting the first patients and also remembering probably what I've been taught at university, which was the very standard view that these are just biological conditions that are pretty ununderstandable and that psychology didn't have much uh, understanding or perhaps even much use to these problems. And yet, when you talk to patients, the accounts are so psychologically rich. And in fact, I've always, I still hear that now. It's all incredibly psychologically rich when I listen to patients. So they were their inspiration in that. And just from, when we talked to the first patients, and particularly, I think it was paranoia, some of the first things, just hearing, for example, the anxiety they were thinking, it just made me realize, well, surely anxiety has a role here. Well, that actually was the first research path that I went along because there seemed to be so much overlap in those two conditions. Anxiety being very much sort of understood with the psychological models and, and paranoia, much less so. Yeah, and that's quite interesting about your work because what you've done is you've not just looked at psychosis as a, as a whole entity, you've split it down into different sort of elements and you've looked at different components of that and, and looked at different targeted treatments for the different elements. And that's, I think, fascinating. And it'd be interesting to hear your opinion on, um, well, where you're at with your work on persecutory delusions. I know you've published lots about this. Yeah, I mean, so the whole diagnosis issue is very interesting, and I, and I think, obviously, in, in the world of psychiatry and psychology, we're still trying to get how we classify disorders you know, in the best possible way. And schizophrenia, I think, has, has been one of the more problematic diagnoses. So we basically try to sidestep the issue by diagnosis of working on the individual psychotic experiences themselves, such as paranoia, not getting caught up so much in diagnosis. It's been an approach. And where I'm at with the paranoia research is really exciting stage actually. I mean I was clinically qualified in about 15 years ago and the first stage really was developing a good theoretical model and the last five years in Oxford has been taking elements of the model because there's no one simple cause of delusion, there are many, developing treatments that target 
each of the cohorts and evaluating them. And that's over the last five years I've been doing that. And then over the last year or two, putting the elements together uh, in a very kind of personalised treatment for patients, um, which also includes patient preference. So we give them a menu of treatment op options, focusing on the, the causal factors relevant to that person, putting it together into a full treatment called the Feeling Safe Programme, which certainly in the first patients who've, who've had this have done really well. And we're now running a, a just started in the last month, an RCT to really put this to the test. But we think we have a, you know, a much better theoretically driven targeted treatment for persecuted delusions. Um, so I'm very optimistic. I think it's been established on a strong theoretical bedrock. We've been carefully uh, testing out the individual elements and studies uh, over the last few years. So I'm hopeful, but of course, we've got to put it to the test. We've got to show it. So, so that's what we're trying to do. So you've got, you, you, you break down potentially different reasons why people might have developed delusions. And then you tailor treatment according to those sort of hypotheses. What does the treatment look like? Yeah, so in, in essence, what I think about paranoia is that it arises from normal psychological process. We all try to decide whether to, 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 to trust people or not trust people in various situations. When we get it wrong, inaccurately, when we're inaccurate about it, uh, that can be a form of paranoia. So it's unfounded beliefs that we're under threat when we're not. Um, this clearly develops on the basis of genetic and environmental risk. Um, but at the heart is this unfounded idea that there's this threat occurring to you and then that's maintained by a number of psychological processes such as worrying too much, feeling very low self-esteem so you feel vulnerable, sleeping badly, only thinking of one explanation for events, um, putting up lots of defences that, that get you locked into your fears. So the treatment, what we do, we, do, we, we don't really want to worry about what, what was true or not in the past. We want to find out whether the person is safe now, whether they're safe enough to get on with their life. And therefore, we want them to help them relearn safety by going back into situations that they, they, they're worried about and doing that by dropping the defences, but also trying to remove the maintenance factors of the individual person so they can make the full learning of safety. And the paranoia then hopefully should melt away as the beliefs about safety uh, are built up again. So that's the kind of model. For a person, what we end up doing typically is. Uh, and those common things really is firstly often getting people to sleep right. It's, it's so common to, to meet people in the first session and you can see they're just shattered. So we know we can sort out their sleep. We've got very good effect sizes for that. So we'll sort out sleep, we'll reduce worry and preoccupation, we'll build up self-confidence and typically after that work we'll get people back into some of the situations they want to be in but are very frightened of and do that while they lower their defences so uh, they get full learning because many of our patients um, well, they typically avoid going outside, um, but even when they're outside, they might avert their gaze or be very hypervigilant or you know, only get out at certain times of day. So we try and stop some of these defensive countermeasures so they can really find out, well, let's find out how the environment is now. Let's do some learning. So our therapy is very active. It's all about getting out into towns, city streets, well, cafes, all the time. Some, some of it isn't getting out into towns, is it? Because you're actually using a, an innovative virtual rea reality model in, in your recent uh, research, is that is that right? Yes, so this is um, well observed. So this is one, one of the uh, other angles we take on this. And I, I think there's a real potential that virtual reality can, can potentially reshape mental health services, both for assessment and treatment, where um, there's very good high quality consumer equipment available now, where you can basically take people 
back into situations and see how they're out there and then. Um, we started to use that in paranoia. Um, and the great beauty of this is, is that people know it's not real and yet their mind and body behaviour is real, so they're getting real learning experiences. But there's enough for people to go, well, it's okay, I know it's not real, I can go up to these people in the virtuality situation and try that out. So they can do things that actually would take a lot longer to achieve uh, without using VR. And um, the first results we've got are, are, are very, very good. I mean, this is work I want to take on, but I think it has a real potential. You know, we want to help people relearn safety and we can do a lot of that learning in virtual environments and people find that easier. And also, if you think of psychiatric wards and places like that where there's, you know, there's too much inactivity but we through these sorts of devices you could actually help people prepare people going back to their home environments what does that look like does it somebody's got a headset on and they've they're looking at a different scene what are the scenes is the therapist standing next to them and can they see their therapist and and what, what actually goes on yeah so this is this is um it's all changing in a way anyway we have a, a wonderful VR lab here in the department of psychiatry that, that we use you put a headset on and you can walk around a large room and we give people virtual train rides and there's a virtual lift and things like that um, and so we've got a great high-end state-of-the-art equipment but of course things like Oculus Rift and other ones coming available uh, which are again headsets but you can sit at a much cheaper computer it's all much cheaper equipment and the experience is great so we're starting to transfer our, our work into the more portable, affordable equipment. Um, you know, I think we'll see big changes in that. So you put it on and, you know, everyone knows it's not real, but you feel as if you're there. So you're doing some powerful. systematic desensitisation sort of work, is that right? Or? Well, it depends on your theoretical perspective, you see. So actually in the study, we compared just an exposure-based treatment with a treatment where you test out your beliefs while dropping your defences, dropping your safety behaviours. And that's a moral cognitive approach. We basically compared a cognitive approach to an exposure approach, both graded. And it's the cognitive approach that was way better. Okay. Because you can be in a situation and not be fully exposed because you're averting your gaze or keeping away from the people or trying to, you know, you're just planning your escape route. So we try and get people to do the opposite to actually go up to the computer characters and, you know, toe to toe almost. Have a bit of fun in it as well. Because you can do things you can't do in real life in, in VR. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's so technically not just we're not just an exposure process. A very specific cognitive one. Find out what the feared cognition is, what the safety papers are that are preventing that belief from being disconfirmed. Dropping the safety papers and then testing out the belief. Is that too psychological? No, it's really, it's really helpful to hear that level of detail actually in what you're doing. We've talked about persecutory delusions quite a bit. Is your thinking completely different with, when it comes to hallucinations? Um, well, that's an interesting one. Um, one has discussions with people about this where I always think delusions are much more understandable and treatable than hallucinations, and then lots of people working hallucinations say the opposite about delusions. So um, I think it's an interesting question there, which we think. I, I think hallucinations, um, psychologically, a lot of it is focused upon... Um, the reaction to the voices, helping people have a relationship to the voices that enables them to still get on doing the things they want to do in their lives. And it's helping people to have a psychological stance to voices that achieves that. Um, and I think that's where we are in current approaches. But in terms of the mechanism of hallucinations, I think, you know, I think that's a bit harder to be sure about and it's certainly harder to manipulate those mechanisms directly through the techniques that we have at the moment. So. I think that's an area where there's a lot of 
potential for uh, growth and improvement and exciting area to be on. Um, but I may be biased because some people say delusions are harder to understand than hallucinations. I find it the other way around. Tell me what you'd like to achieve with your your uh, current programme of work in, in psychosis. Uh, for me, it's, it's pretty clear. In the current trial, we're going to be recruiting patients who've got their persecuted delusion despite being in services and having had treatments, mainly medication treatments in most cases. Some people have had some psychological therapy. I want to hit a recovery rate of at least half the patients no longer meeting criteria for delusion by the end of our full treatment. That's the ambition that we have. And all of this is trying to build this up in a way where it's disseminable. We're manualising a lot of this work in, in a lot of detail because it's all well and good having these treatments, but we've got to get into the health services as well. So we need treatment that can be used. I think sometimes psychological treatments suffer from their complexity. So we're trying to distill the, the, the key essences of the treatment approaches in a way that many more people in mental health services can, can use. But I also think that regardless of the talk, hallucinations, delusions, or any other mental health disorder, there's lots of common processes that cut across mental health problems bad sleep, worry, rumination, low self-esteem, all those sorts of things cuts across, I think, every mental health condition. And mental health professionals, I think, should be able to achieve them. We certainly know those techniques that can work. So um, we, that, that's the other aim of it, really, is to not only have the treatment that really works, but one that we can actually train and use in services. Professor Daniel Freeman, it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you for sparing time to uh, contribute. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Psychiatry Podcast series. Goodbye.